Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. Our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the unique pleasure of speaking with Peter Thompson. He's an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba, where he arrived in March. And as we spoke um, just briefly, he, uh, I get, he just had about two weeks in the laboratory until things... <laughs> Uh, un- unfortunately and unexpectedly sort of shut down due to the pandemic, but uh, apparently he's back um, in his laboratory. So welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, Monica. It's my pleasure. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes. Could you share that with us? Yeah. So uh, so basically my background in science um, is a little bit of a longer convoluted one. I, I did not start um, any graduate work in the field of, you know, uh, endocrine, endocrinology, metabolism, uh, or any of those areas that are related to T1D. Um, I, my work was really in stem cell biology, and um, I've always been fascinated by how cells make decisions, uh, how they regulate uh, gene expression. And, um, and so I, finishing my PhD in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia, I became interested in exploring that concept of that field in a more sort of disease focused uh, area. And so I became uh, connected with uh, Dr. Neil Bushin at UCSF. um, And at the time their lab was very much uh, uh, focused on understanding epigenetic mechanisms um, for how uh, beta cells regulate gene expression and how they um, make decisions um, and the relevance of that to type one diabetes, type two diabetes. Um, and so, so that really kind of overlapped a lot with my interests and, and the kind of the direction I wanted to go with my research. So it was a roundabout way, I guess you could say. I think it's so important that people um, come to the field from different directions and they bring their, you know, they bring their expertise and their innovation and their inquiry from other, you know, viewpoints, I think, to, to the field. So I think it's great. What are your thoughts about the work being done right now in in the field that addresses uh, type one and, and I guess sort of from your perspective, your, your actual um, field. Yeah, I think uh, there's some really exciting work coming out, um, particularly with relevance to the role of the beta cell in type one. And, um, and this is really what's motivated my research program. This is really the direction that I've gone since my postdoc. Um, and, uh, in, in particular, it's really becoming clear that um, beta cells are not simply dying <laughs> in type 1. Um, they're becoming dysfunctional, uh, and they're, losing, they're, they're showing hallmarks of lost identity. Um, and, uh, and so this really opens up a whole new avenue to explore. Um, and the idea that beta cells, uh, they can, of course, they can, they can commit apoptosis, program cell death, um, in the context of, of type 1 diabetes, but they may also be doing different things. And as we start to learn and understand about some of those other outcomes in the beta cell besides, uh, besides death, um, it may give us a handle on new ways to approach uh, prevention. And so that's really kind of the focus of what, what I'm excited about. Um, and so there's some really interesting work that's been done, I guess, over the past maybe three to five years-ish uh, coming out of a variety of different labs on um, specifically on beta cell apoptosis um, and, and really looking at ways to stop apoptosis. And so, you know, we know the beta cells are, are dying and the idea was, well, can we go in and um, find, uh, you know, 
drug targets, ways to prevent that from happening. Um, and so some really uh, interesting work has shown that um, by targeting the ER stress pathway that leads to an unfolded protein response in beta cells, uh, you can prevent the disease, uh, for instance, in preclinical models like the, the NOD mouse. Um, and then I know that there's some uh, really interesting work that's being done in terms of clinical translation. There's clinical trials going on with this work. Um, uh, some of that coming out of Faisa uh, uh, Engen's lab, for instance, at Wisconsin, and um, Frodo's Papa's lab at UCSF, uh, among others. Uh, so, so that really, I think, that was kind of the, the context and has been the context around um, you know, looking at the beta cell in type 1, uh, really targeting these pathways that we know lead beta cells to uh, program cell death. So. Yeah, no, that's really curious because, um, you know, for some time it's been this whole conundrum of like, is from that, uh, that great paper Mark Atkinson, Kevin Harold and others were involved in um, a few years back, you know, beta cell death, is it murder or suicide? Yeah. Right. So it's always that that's still kind of up for debate. Like, is this, you know, or is the immune system just doing its job or is it really this the beta cell that really needs to go? So it's it is curious about this whole idea of um, this people are starting to, you know, really push the idea to the forefront that the beta cell actually could be driving its destruction because it's it's unwell. Yeah. And in terms of the ER distress, you know, what are some, you know, what are some things that are, that, that could be driving the ER distress? I mean, one thing obviously is the, you know, a viral insult, a Coxsackie has been one of the big, you know, players that have been, you know, uh, implicated in, in driving, you know, beta viral uh, mediated death of beta cells. But what, what are some other things that can cause, uh, ER stress and, you know, setting off the UPR, UFP. Yeah, I mean, I think this yeah, is, sorry. <laughs> this is really, a, <laughs> this is really a, a growing area of research, I would say. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, work that had been done many years ago looking at particular ways in which the branches of the UPR are activated. And so, you know, we know that there's three distinct branches that can be activated by a variety of different stresses um, that affect maybe you know, mitochondria. Uh, of course, beta cells have a very, very high uh, metabolic demand um, in terms of processing and secreting insulin. Um, so, you know, there, there's a really, really exquisitely regulated and sensitive balance um, that is uh, obviously very uh, susceptible to being perturbed um, in a variety of different ways. So, um, but, you know, in terms of like specific triggers and, and how that starts, um, you know, there's, there's lots of different theories out there. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, you know, one of the interesting things I think is, is coming, coming out with some of the, the, the newer work um, is that, you know, this idea that there's not one sort of road to type one, that there, there may be many different sort of insults or, or ways that, that lead to, you know, beta cell dysfunction, um, you know, immune mediated beta cell killing, autoimmunity, they're all sort of integrated, but, but we, we need to move away from the idea that there's a one size sort of fits all, one sort of concept of, of, of how beta cells uh, are destroyed in this disease. Um, and so I think that really speaks to understanding really those, those triggers, understanding what is it that, that sets off the, the you know, UPR 
uh, in the beta cell. And, that, and that's not my particular area of expertise, so I would defer to those who, who've been really active and prolific in that area um, as to what they, their ideas might be on that. But uh, I do think that it does support that notion. You know, we need to, we need to be thinking more um, broadly. And, and it, it really does allow for the combination of some of the clinical evidence that's coming out around mm-hmm. uh, interpatient heterogeneity. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of disease onset, uh, for instance, you know, we've known for years that there is this um, window when a person's diagnosed where, uh, you know, once they start on insulin, their beta cells might recover a little bit. Um, and it's called this honeymoon period. Yeah. Uh, why does it happen? Um, why does it happen for some people and not other people? Um, yeah. Is there something different about what the beta cells are experiencing in, in different people? Um, whether it be, you know, again, viral, viral mediated or, or you know, uh, just genetic variants or, you know, all these different factors that then lead to, you know, different outcomes for um, in terms of, you know, disease onset. Yeah. Uh, so these are really all interesting areas. They are. And there's a, it'd be very interesting to get a, a window to be able to get some kind of window into what does happen during the honeymoon period period or even what happens to patients when they only have one biomarker right before they progress to the second one it's right. almost as if they're coming in and out of remission you know and right, yeah. but so what about in terms of what you the exciting new work you're doing in your <clears throat> your lab and this great new paper that you just had um come out last year i want to talk a little bit about it the ijms uh the bet proteins bet proteins are required for transcriptional activation of the senescent island cell secretome in type 1 diabetes that's a pretty cool paper do you want to touch on that? And then maybe we could talk about what you're doing in your lab. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess the really the, the foundation or the sort of the springboard into that, that work was our discovery that, um, as I mentioned earlier, beta cells are doing more than dying uh, in the context of type 1 diabetes. Um, and we discovered that they're actually becoming senescent. A subset of beta cells is activating um, for all intents and purposes, what appears to be a damage-induced senescence program. And so senescence uh, classically is understood as this uh, program state of growth arrest, um, cells that are too old or have become damaged in a way that the damage cannot be repaired, uh, activate uh, a conserved set of uh, molecular uh, pathways that then lead them to arrest their uh, growth And um, this process is not always a a bad one. It can be beneficial. Um, So so there's lots of really interesting work showing that, um, you know, senescent cells accumulate during wound healing, for instance. And the immune system normally can, uh, you know, resolve that um, by eliminating the senescent cells. But on the other hand, uh, it can be detrimental when these cells accumulate and when they're they're not efficiently uh, removed. And so that really, um, that, that kind of started, started me down this direction. And, uh, and, the, and then, you know, the idea out of that was that, uh, well, if they really are senescent, can we, can we do anything about it? And so we used an approach where we could uh, use small molecule inhibitors of the apoptotic pathway that's specifically upregulated in senescent cells. And we could show that these inhibitors were capable of selectively triggering cell death in the senescent beta cells. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we did this in the, the NOD mouse model, um, and, and this basically prevents the disease. Now, in that context, using the drugs we were using, 
uh, we were not seeing any effects on any of the different immune cell subsets that are known to be involved in the disease. Uh, nothing, no effects on CD4 or CD8 T cells or Treg, which are obviously critical for um, the yeah. autoimmune process. No effects on uh, myeloid cells, so no effects on macrophages or dendritic cells. That's it amazing. really uh, was quite selective, which was uh, amazing. It's quite striking that we could selectively target a pathway in the beta cell and it would have such a dramatic effect. And in fact, you know, move, again, moving away from the concept that we simply have to spare beta cells in type one to understanding that the beta cell, beta, some beta cells are participating in this destruction process as a result of senescence. And that, that, uh, that pathway gives us some therapeutic avenues to, to work with that we previously didn't even know about. Right, um, it really is a, a, a brand new paradigm. It really is, absolutely. And, and then we were able to go and, uh, and, and through um, the NPOD repository, we found that uh, some of the same markers we saw, <clears throat> excuse me, in the mouse, in the mouse model uh, for senescent beta cells were also being expressed in beta cells in uh, autoantibody positive donors and, and donors with recent onset type one. Right. Um, so it really suggested to us that this pathway is, uh, is actually happening in the context of the human disease as well. Um, and so kind of going from that, getting, getting back to your, your, your original question of, of this new paper, going, from, going forward from that, uh, we were interested to understand uh, how senescence is regulated in the beta cell. And, and, and really one of the main critiques we had with, with um, this concept as we, were, as we were putting together this work and, and now, you know, as I'm starting my new lab is, well, how, how does senescence really compare? Is it, is it, is it, is it really different than apoptosis? Is it simple? Are beta cells really en route to apoptosis and then they kind of segue into this, this other state and, and then they die? And the answer really is that no, this is a distinct, uh, a, a programmed, regulated state in the beta cell that is functionally distinct from apoptosis. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the, the context of, of that second paper. Um, and the basic idea was we were looking to understand um, how how senescence is regulated. We looked at the transcriptional mechanisms, so how uh, gene expression is regulated in the senescent beta cell. And what's really, what we, we showed in the first paper was that when these beta cells become senescent, they also uh, become pro-inflammatory. Uh, they develop a secretome, so right. this is the collection of secreted bioactive molecules, uh, a secretome that is um, basically immune activated. And it, and it initiates or provokes inflammation. Um, and this has been previously described in the context of senescence uh, in, in many different papers, um, particularly in the cancer field, uh, but it's known as a senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or SASP. Uh, you know, biologists love acronyms, so there you yes. go for you, SASP. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so the idea was that, uh, well, let's, let's figure out what, uh, how the SASP is being regulated at the level of gene expression. And so we, we identified a new pathway involving epigenetic regulation. And we were able to show that um, some very widely used drugs in the cancer field um, that target a well-known family of uh, gene activators known as the BET proteins yep. could uh, suppress the secretory phenotype in the senescent beta cell. Um, so this really, uh, I think, strengthens the idea and, and provides very good evidence to substantiate that uh, beta cell senescence really is a, a, a truly distinct entity. It is a truly distinct um, regulated phenomenon in the beta cell. It's not simply a sort of 
you know, weird apoptotic like state. It's, it's very distinct. Um, you know, again, going back to, to the earlier work we showed in, in that first paper that it's a, it's an anti-apoptotic state. So the beta mm -hmm. cells are actually upregulating proteins that protect them from uh, apoptosis, uh, paradoxically, rather than, you know, uh, triggering apoptosis. So it's almost um, like you're, really you're entering a zombie state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, right? It's almost, it's some of us may feel like that already, you know, during COVID, but it is. Is, absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a very good analogy. So. It's not like they're dead, but they're, they're like the undead, but they're still giving out bad signals. And if you can shut down their signaling, then maybe, right, maybe the rest of the islets will be protected. And one thing that's so interesting is, you know, in talking, I did speak with Anil, he's on, we have an interview with him on the sugar science, but, yeah. you know, the senescence, um, a lot of times cells that undergo senescence are cleared by the immune system, right? But these are not getting cleared. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really, I think, a, a huge part of this and understanding, um, understanding the potential for, you know, senescence targeted sort of therapies, you know, in, in the context of type one. Normally, um, the immune system has mechanisms to clear senescent cells, as you mentioned, and, and a lot of these have been described in the, in the cancer field around innate immunity. Um, so things like NK cells, uh, macrophages, um, they have the ability to recognize cells that have activated senescence um, and, and have activated this SASP pathway and uh, selectively clear them from tissues. And this is, again, a part of promoting tissue regeneration, wound healing. Um, there's, there's pathways in which this, this uh, phenomenon occurs during even embryonic development. Um, so it, it, it's not simply a diseased sort of thing, but again, um, we need to we need to differentiate when we talk about senescence. There's there's different flavors of senescence, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, not all senescence is the same. Uh, there's a kind of senescence that occurs during development, and that's distinct from maybe the kind of senescence that happens when a cell uncontrollably uh, divides and then activates an anti-oncogenic response, and then it becomes senescent that way. Yeah, and that's distinct um, still further from uh, cells that accumulate um, senescence as we age or accumulate senescence as a result of damage. And, and so when it comes to understanding senescence in the beta cell, um, I think it's really important to, to kind of keep those distinctions in mind. And then, you know, getting back to what you had, you had mentioned, like how does, how does immune-mediated clearance factor into all of this? Um, well, you know, maybe there's sort of two ways of thinking about it and, and perhaps they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, on the one hand, it may be that uh, there is a, clear deficiency in the natural mechanisms that mediate immune clearance um, in the context of type 1. So we know that there's obviously a, a, a large number of immune um, dysfunctions in people who have type 1 diabetes and, and people who are autoantibody positive who go on to develop type 1. And so, you know, the idea there would be maybe you have uh, uh, a deficiency underlying everything else that then you know, when these beta, senescent beta cells start to accumulate, there's just nothing there to, to, to kind of reduce the burden, uh, reduce their accumulation. So that's, a one, that's kind of one idea. And the other idea, I think, um, might be that, you know, really these cells are, are so unique or so different um, from, you know, normal senescent cells or senescent cells that accumulate normally in other tissues, uh, that the immune system just doesn't know what to do with them. <laughs> 
And um, and so and so you know even in the context of of someone who who um, their immune system would normally have the capability of clearing uh, senescent cells and other tissues, when it comes to senescent beta cells, there's just really no way to cope with them. Um, and so then you know they would they would accumulate in that way. And and so you know I, I really think that that's going to be a really interesting uh, uh, set of ideas to explore further. And I know um, I know Anil's lab is really going in that direction. Uh, yeah. Looking at the immune system in particular, and, and and focusing on on that side of it. So yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And you know, a lot of people made the argument that the anatomy of the mouse eyelid is so different than the um, human uh, eyelid. So you know, how can we? And there's been this big whole battle, or not battle, but a conversation, I guess, about you know, can we really relate what we're seeing in the nod mouse to the human eyelids, et cetera. But when you guys saw right across the board that this, you know, secretome um, was uh, present in both the, mo the nod mouse and the NPOD samples, I think that really um, is convincing that there's, even though the architecture might be a little different and maybe some things are different, that there is a commonality there that, that really has to be addressed and looked at further. Absolutely. That's pretty cool. So what about, um, you know, um, what about where you're going to be going with your lab? Yeah, so for, for our work, um, I'm really, one of the things that really motivates um, my interest in this is, is really trying to understand really going, going a step further back and, and saying, well, how, how do senescent beta cells arise? Um, and looking at things that are intrinsic to the beta cell and things that are extrinsic to the beta cell. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, this is such, because this is such a new area, we don't really have the right, I guess, categories for understanding what we know and, and how to describe it. And what we, what we you know, showed, showed in the initial papers was really more of like an observation, right? And um, mm -hmm. so kind of getting at this question, like my, I guess, the, one of the ways that I've understood this is, um, you know, the immune system and the the autoimmune process, as complex as it is, is not like a laser precision type of thing. It's not going to be so exact that it does the exact same thing to every beta cell. Um, when it, when a you know uh, cytotoxic lymphocyte that's reactive against insulin comes up against a, a beta cell, one beta cell in the islet, um, it may be capable of triggering you know cell mediated. Uh, cell to cell mediated uh, death pathways yeah. in a conventional sense. Um, but when it comes up against a different beta cell in the same islet, perhaps that process is not happening in the same way. And so you have this, I think there's this, there should be more of a recognition. And this is kind of what I've been interested in is um, the heterogeneity that we know exists between beta cells in the islet, that must extend to understanding how the immune system interacts with um, individual beta cells in an islet and how the, the immune mediated destruction process occurs. And so, you know, it's getting at this idea that the process is not like a, again, laser precise. Um, and that perhaps when some beta cells are, are committing apoptosis because they, they, they incur that damage, other beta cells are becoming senescent. Um, and so, yeah. you know, in the same islet, you have beta cells doing different things, even though you have the same sort of um, stress being applied in the form of you know, uh, uh, the autoimmune process. And, yeah. and so I'm really interested in exploring that and, and the crosstalk between um, the autoimmunity and, and its role perhaps in, in provoking these sort of odd beta cell fates that, that seem to be arising. 
it's going to be a real dissection process. I think you've got, you've got a, that's a big project, but it's, it really is exciting. I mean, it's, it sounds so interesting. And I mean, I think you're, you know, you're well prepared to, to ask these questions and, um, and start this whole, you know, or continue this whole line of inquiry. Um, but it is, it's very ambitious, right? Because you've got, <laughs> but I love it. I think it's, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, so in, in your laboratory though, you're in Manitoba. Is, is this, are, are you guys opening back up now? How's that working? Yeah. So we are, we are starting to open back up. Um, I think our, our lab spaces here in the Institute are about 50%. Um, so people are, people are moving forward. Um, there was a, a return to research that happened, I guess, back in June for those who were having, you know, had really sensitive time sensitive sort of experiments they had to complete. Um, and so some people have been kind of back and, and re-engaging and rebooting research ever since kind of early summer. Um, for, for those like myself who are just starting out, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> perhaps lower priority. Um, oh, you know, it's, it's kind it should of be highest priority. Now, so. <laughs> I know. That's a, <laughs> to be honest, you guys should be the highest priority, the young scientists. Yeah, this is a big challenge. Um, I, I think I've been encouraged that there has been a lot of support from, um, our, I know, from our institution, from a lot of institutions across Canada and the U.S., uh, from funding agencies to really support early career researchers. Um, yeah. People who are starting labs, uh, postdocs that may be just making that transition to independent faculty jobs um, to make sure that they have, that we have the resources we need to be successful. And, and whether that be, you know, pushing back tenure clocks or extending uh, deadlines for, for applying for certain grants. Um, I, I do see that. And I think that's really encouraging to see. We do need to have more advocacy. We do need to have more uh, uh, forms of, um, you know, connecting with with funding bodies to make sure that um, they understand the challenges that that we're facing and uh, the ways that those are exacerbated by uh, by the pandemic. Yeah, I think it might be a great um, thing if some um, if they could these different funding bodies could form a, a focus group with young um, scientists and maybe just get their feedback in that way or something like that. Um, yeah. It might be very helpful because you do have a unique set of challenges and let's face it, the young scientists are the future. Um, so they have to be, you know, nurtured and I think um, also supportive in this very un, you know, unexpected time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry for this dog barking in the background. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I just wanted to ask, you know, uh, do you think it, I'm just sort of totally hypothetically just throwing it out there. Where do you think uh, the, uh, the cure from uh, T1D will be coming from? I mean, do you think it's going to be a multidiscipline, uh, you know, effort uh, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's, um, that's really, that's, that's, we're, we're kind of all kind of trying to figure this out together. I think that um, the community of researchers around T1D is, I would say like, just as a, someone who's just recently entered this this arena, I think it's people have been incredibly supportive, incredibly collaborative. Um, there has been uh, a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, in terms of developing cures, looking at uh, stem cells, and I, I do think that stem cell based beta cells have a lot of potential. Yeah. Um, particularly because uh, the technology has has advanced to the point where. 
um, we have very, very functional um, beta-like cells that can be you know, transplanted and maintain long-term uh, viability and function, even in the context of you know, uh, autoimmunity. Um, and, and, and I know that there's still a lot of hurdles to be you know, overcome in this area, but I, I do see that as a really big advance in the last, you know, even the last five, five to 10 years. I mean, it's been huge. Uh, there's a lot of obviously uh, pharma interest in this area, which is is integral to to moving moving it towards the clinic, okay. and um, and and you know it's it's really being able to to improve upon um, the existing beta cell replacement. I mean, we've we've seen this progression over the last twenty odd years, going from the initial um, you know Edmonton protocol really of island yeah. Um, fantastic work that was was done, pioneering work to show that we could actually transplant human islets and and basically cure the disease that way, um, and provide long term long term uh, uh, glucose uh, homeostasis in in patients that way. To now um, approaching it from a different angle and and trying to improve upon um, beta cell replacement using stem cell derived beta cells. Um, so you know I think. When you look at the field that way, I, I see that we're we're on the right track. We're on this trajectory, and um, you know it, it may just be a matter of time. Um, now, the question of whether stem cell-based beta cells will work for every person with type one is is a, is a difficult one to answer. And I don't know that we really have all the all the pieces in place to be able to to say one way or the other just yet. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it's a lot. It's got a lot of promise. Um, so. You know, I, I look at I look at the T1D space, and you know, you've got you've got the cure side, which you know we're we're actively working to to be able to come up with um, long term functional beta cell replacement uh, therapies uh, for for people living with the disease. And then on the other side, we're um, looking at you know the other side of the space is really prevention and 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 understanding that uh, type one is not something that just occurs immediately at diagnosis. It's something that might've been happening years before for yep. some patients. And being able to identify kind of those hallmarks along the way, you know, we've known about autoantibodies for years, let's move beyond that, let's develop other biomarkers so that we can really understand, you know, the full sort of spectrum of the etiology right from the earliest stages that we can. Yeah. Um, and so that's, and that's the area that I really, I'm really passionate about, as you can tell. But, um, I think that, uh, yeah, when it comes to cures, you know, the stem cell-based beta cell therapies have a lot of potential. Um, you know, and then there's other ways that, that other people have been thinking about um, type 1. Of course, you know, better, better glucose monitoring. So the continuous glucose monitors have been in, been in use for a while now. Um, and, and, you know, developing better insulins and so on. These, these, these approaches are, are improving as well. And I think that collectively, um, we're, we're coming up with better ways to uh, really raise the standard of care, uh, improve the quality of life um, for, for people who are affected by type one. And, uh, and that's exciting. I think that you know, there's really a lot, of, a lot of good news out there. There is. Uh, it does, it's a very, yeah, it's a really vibrant time in the science that's going on and um, our hope is just to help people communicate and collaborate um, across disciplines in the space because I do think that new ideas can come from people who are studying the different uh, aspects yeah. and um, you know hopefully just 
because particularly now that we we have some of these constraints with the pandemic and still kind of coming out of the pandemic uh, for communication, you know, the conferences, et cetera, we're hoping to become a place where people can, um, you know, connect, really, really connect and listen to new um, scientists talking and think, oh, that's so cool. I'm, I'm going to reach out to this person and just, you know, see if there's any kind of um, uh, room for collaboration or anything like that. Um, or just over a conversation. So we're hoping to provide that, and um, so far it's it's going well. But I do think, yeah, there's a lot of different uh, there's a d lot of different ways to approach T1T research. And I see just sort of because I have the video here, I see you have a chess set behind you, and I have to comment on that because in a way, uh, it is sort of like chess you know, approaching this very difficult disease, you're making a move, you see what happens, then you've got, you know, then you sort of like wait for the, what, what is the system doing? Yeah. Then you'd make another, yeah. and then you, then you make another, you know, uh, experimental approach, then you see the system's response. So it's, it's kind of curious. And I don't know, I think you're well positioned to make a difference in the space. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Peter, I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best in getting your lab up and back to full steam ahead. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Monica. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks again.